Good morning. We've gathered to worship the Lord. I was listening to that prelude, Jane. I heard a little Stevie Wonder thing happening there. You, you are the sunshine of my life. You know, the, the big joke here at Celebration is when they were considering calling me, which was their first mistake. They said, oh, we want to have a vibrant, classic kind of worship style. And I thought, classic music? That's that era between when Hendrix released Are You Experienced and the Beatles did Abbey Road. That was a great music era. So we're still learning, but it's good to be together. We are here as God's people for the call. Yeah, y'all are wondering, too much coffee this morning. The call to worship that I wanted to do is actually taken from First Chronicles. We think of David, King David and the Psalms. And that's right and good, but there's also some historical records of some of King David's poetry and worship, and that's what I've set out for you responsively this morning for our call to worship. First Chronicles chapter 29, beginning at verse 10. Uh, let me begin. Now David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you're able, why don't you stand and join me with hymn number 21. It's This Is My Father's World. Amen. 
Have a seat if you would. The good news, we've gathered today to worship the one who leads us even through a confused and broken world. We have a hope that comes from outside, our own abilities, our own identities, our own wounds, our own fears. It's always a joy to welcome you. I, I say, and I'll say this regularly, that each face I see as I kind of scan the congregation, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, Father, thank you for that answered prayer. I pray for the week. Lord, bring those that you desire to be a part of that. And so you and your presence here is an answer to that prayer. Thank you. As well, I pray for those who join us online that we can worship here, one heart, one voice, but also through live stream or recording, we're able to join people in their time and space and be a part of what's happening here, bring that to them. I'm very thankful for that. Let me point something out that some of you would have seen if you got here early enough. I'm so excited and having such a great time in the book that we're uh, using in parallel to the sermon series. It's called Praying the Lord's Prayer by J.I. Packer. I'm just taking some quotes out of each chapter that goes with the week that I'm praying, uh, preaching, and you'll see that rotated during the uh, prelude time. So as Jane is playing, you'll see a few quotes from that book, just praying. What I'm encouraging you to do, that 10 minutes before the service, we're trying to do two things. One is to build relationship and conversation. And a great place to do that is in the libraries. Folks are coming in. But we also want to have a sense of preparing our hearts and minds for worship. And so with Jane's music and with the quotations and the opportunity to kind of gather here and get refocused, I come in from a week just thinking, oh, man, what will I do? So it's good to have that time. So you'll see if you come early, you can hear that music, you can see those quotations. Um, there's opportunity to gather, say hello to folks, uh, press forward in that way. So we'll see how that works for the summer and go from there. Um, after the service, coffee, another time to gather and connect with folks. And uh, I will be doing a question and answer in, at about 10.30 in room number one there in the basement, kind of an open chance for people to say, boy, would you explain this more? Or what do you think about this? Or um, is this really going to be the year for the Lions? You know, so we'll just go anywhere in that time. It's your chance to um, get stuff. We're moving into our summer schedule. Uh, and we can begin to feel that. Last week, we were training uh, our staff from Great Escape Day Camp. That'll happen in the anchor each day of the week. Um, Friday night, we had a summer function, a middle school ministry that's been a great impact in our community. Saturday, our Honduras mission team left. They're in Honduras by now. And Deb Whitbeck, who is part of Celebration, often runs the slides. She's there in Honduras. So today, Celebration, the family of Celebration is international. Remember to pray for Deb. What God is doing here is for the whole world. A couple of slides, things we want to do while we're do the, doing this um, uh, sermon series on prayer. On Tuesday mornings, we're going to have the sanctuary open and an opportunity. Again, there'll be a prayer guide. There'll be some quiet music, a chance to gather here 
put into practice what you may have learned, just private prayer, nothing structured at all, but there is that opportunity. And then on Wednesday evening, our regular weekly Gems and Cadets program is not going on during the summer, but we will do some intermittent activities. And Wednesday night, this touches my inner Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia, we have a tie-dye event. So if you have a child or grandchild or even a neighbor, why don't you feel free to bring them uh, at those appropriate ages and share this time with them, a good time to be out. Because again, what drives us, what leads us here at Hardwick is this mission statement that we are inviting everyone to join the journey of being found in, formed by, and following Jesus Christ. That's my prayer and my goal, week by week, day by day. Um, one of the things I'll talk about today is how there are things external to us that shape who we are and our identity, that you'll never really know who you are or be able to get a, a grip on that by just looking inside and evaluating your feelings as if those are the sum total of what truth is. There's external reality that shapes who we are, and one way we let external things begin to have input into our lives is as we join the community of faith. And I want to do that in a very special way. We're going to take one question from the Heidelberg Catechism, centuries-old statement of uh, what it means to uh, love Christ as revealed in the Scriptures, and as it focuses on where I'm preaching in the Lord's Prayer each week this summer, it'll kind of direct us. So let's remember that the faith is not ours to invent, it's ours to receive, to apply, and to pass on. Here's the question, it's number 120 uh, this week. Why did Christ command us to call God our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer, what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust, that through Christ, God has become our Father, and that just as our parents do not refuse us the things of this life, even less will God our Father refuse to give us what we ask in faith. Uh, hymn number 624. Uh, not what my hands have done as you're able. Let's stand and sing to the glory of God.
Amen. Have a seat. It's a great hymn to lead us before the throne of God as we pursue him in prayer. Will you join me and we pray together? Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that because of what Jesus did at the cross for each of us and indeed for all humanity, that the door has been opened to the throne of grace. And there we meet not simply the great majestic God, but we meet the, the great majestic God who is now our Father. For we, by grace, are deeply loved, fully adopted children of the great Creator King. We thank you for that truth. May it shape and motivate us as we pray. Father, we pray together in intercession for Pastor Aaron and for the watershed community that will worship in just a few minutes and declare your gospel in the anchor. We pray for Pastor JB across the hallway in the fusion community. Again, that as we preach and pray together, we might see the clarity of your love and grace for us. And for Pastor Florencio and the Mission Church that'll be meeting in the sanctuary this afternoon and uh, worshiping you, praising you in the Spanish language. Thank you for your great work across all the globe, across these centuries, and even now in each of us. Father, we pray for celebration, this particular gathering of your people, that you've called us from many parts and indeed through the live stream extended uh, far and um, away. We thank you that you're gathering us as your people to care and to love one another, to weep with those who are weeping, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, to encourage the discouraged, to challenge the self-righteous, to at every step be a community that seeks to be formed by Christ. Work in us the image of Jesus, that the world might see not simply us, but you at work in us and be drawn to you. Father, as we learn to pray, each of us seeking that next step in our prayer life through this summer, I want to set aside this moment and just invite each one of you as an individual in the silent sanctuary of your heart to lift to the Lord your prayer, perhaps intercession for someone who needs guidance or encouragement or healing, uh, perhaps uh, that someone would be drawn to Christ in relationship, but just take a moment and let the Father hear the cry of your heart. Father, make us a people of gratitude, but also work in us to express and bear fruit with the words of gratitude. I would borrow these prayers from Scotty Smith. There are thank yous, words of affection, acknowledgments of appreciation I wish that I had given. That's not guilt speaking, but it is your grace at work in my heart to see where I might have missed but to be encouraged to look for new opportunities. Free me and free my friends from putting off words of thanks, encouragement, and appreciation. Though there are some goodbyes we're sad we didn't get to say, may there be many I so appreciate yous that can still be given today and tomorrow. 
Father, you teach us to pray for those in authority over us. And so this Sunday, we pray for the General Synod of the CRCNA, the denomination of Heart Awake as it began Friday. Guide their deliberations. And we pray that you might uh, help us as a transnational gathering of people uh, connected in this way by the faith that binds us. Help us to learn to live that out graciously and truly. Be with the delegates and all that they'll uh, decide. We thank you too for the missionary work of uh, your church and we pray for our Honduras team, eight folks from um, the various Heart of White communities now in Honduras working with the Abundant Life School as classes are over, preparing, doing things, learning. In particular, we thank you for uh, Deb, who is uh, a regular part of celebration and there with that team. We thank you, Father, that the gospel you've uh, captured our hearts with is not for us alone, but it's for uh, each person that you're calling to yourself in adoption and in hope. So, Father, we pray you would extend the gospel and that you would uh, use us to your glory. Most of all, Father, we ask that you would teach us to pray uh, using these words that the Lord Jesus used as part of his prayer and that he encourages us to use as well. We'll say together, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, during the school year, I'll often have a time where I spend a, a moment or two with kids or we send them off to classes. With our summer schedule, we're actually taking care of kids either with uh, pew resources or we have some quiet space uh, up in the balcony or some uh, have to be less quiet space in the library or a nursery that's staffed and ready for children. So we're in kind of a new groove for the summer and encourage you to take care of that, Janet and Becky and Christine are uh, available to help folks make those navigations. We're going to spend the summer working through the Lord's Prayer. And I mentioned last week that Jesus actually teaches this two different times, one recorded in Matthew, one in Luke. Last week we looked at Luke, and that's when the disciples had seen him praying. So one said, please teach us, and then he taught them all. Today we're looking at Matthew's record of the Lord's Prayer, and it's in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount where he's speaking publicly to all who will listen. And it reminded me, I mentioned this last week, I'll touch it again to reinforce, that the Lord's Prayer appears to be the framework that Jesus himself used. And he gives it to us, his followers, not as a mantra to repeat, but as a framework to guide our life in prayer. And so we'll be looking at the various phrases week by week. And in this way, I want to equip you, and my prayer has been for months now, that you might find the next step in your prayer life. There's a hundred or so people here. My guess is there's a hundred or so different and varied prayer lives. That's fine. My prayer would be that by September, we're one step further down the path of that journey. 
and how that works out, I'm happy to be a part of that with you if you like, or you can pray and look at it. You can read some resources. Um, we have out there, by the way, um, for free, pick up a Teach Us to Pray, Praise, Repent, Ask, Yield, Four Steps in Prayer if you're looking for a prayer life. Um, also, this little book by J.I. Packer. I had those quotes at the beginning, and each week I'm focusing on a particular chapter. He breaks it up just like we do. Um, so this is where we're going. This morning we'll be reading from the book of Matthew chapter 6, and I'll read the context before and after the teaching on the Lord's Prayer. But I will ask this, as you're able, if you could stand together as I read out of respect and appreciation for God's Word. This is from Matthew 6, verses 1 through 9. This is Jesus speaking to the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, now be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It just won't pay off. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, your prayer closet. Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words, that repetition, mantra-like sort of approach to prayer. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray in light of that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and let's pray. Father, thank you that you have loved us and that in your great love for us, you've not left us abandoned or alone. Uh, Jesus went to the cross to draw us into familial relationship with the living God that you offer to us guidance and hope and strength and insight. And we enter into that through the practice of prayer. So we thank you for the way we see prayer in the life of Jesus. Help us to hear what he's teaching, to begin to implement, even as we can see people across cultures and time and your church learning and stepping into prayer. Guide us in that. Thank you that Matthew himself was probably there that day and heard this Sermon on the Mount. And he saw you pray this way and teach others to pray this way. And so he recorded it in his gospel. And then amazingly, you've preserved these texts in a, a tremendous ways across centuries. So that now by your grace, we can uh, sort of unroll the scroll is the picture in my mind and begin to translate and meditate and consider and study. 
But most of all, Holy Spirit, we need you to take the ink from the page, as it were, and press it deep into our hearts and minds. May we be different, not because of Bill, but because of Jesus, who gives the Holy Spirit to teach and to lead. Thank you that you love us. And so your perfect love casts out all fear of failure, of missing the point, of missing the boat, whatever it may be. We're just loved by you. Thank you that there's nothing we can do to cause you to love us anymore and nothing we can do that'll cause you to love us any less. For you are love. Open our hearts to receive that this day. For we pray in the mighty and marvelous, uh, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, we're working through this series, uh, Teach Us to Pray. And this morning, I was very struck by how this passage that I want to focus on, the Our Father, really helps us get a location in the universe. You know, Mary Lynn and I lived for about 10 years in Asheville, North Carolina. They're in the western mountains of the state. It's a beautiful town, and for us, it was a fun town. I used to love the bumper stickers, Keep Asheville Weird. There was this kind of self-identity that we are the San Francisco of the South. And there's some pluses and minuses with that, I'll tell you. But it was a great place to go for music, for food, for street artists. The mountains were beautiful. Um, every weekend, there'd be a festival downtown, and we would just kind of amble away and say, oh, that's weird. Oh, that's cool. So we enjoyed Asheville. We have fond memories of it. And one of the interesting things about Asheville, everyone who lives there has an opinion or a conviction. Everyone. And you know what it is. Because they can fit it on a bumper sticker. You drive through Asheville, and it's not unusual to see 10, uh, ten bumper stickers on one car. They've got a conviction, and they want you to know it as they cut in front of you trying to get the exit on the interstate. You know how that is. We're probably a little discreet. Certainly I am. One of the first things I did when I got there was take off all my bumper stickers. Sometimes I need to hide who I am as I cut people off. You know how those bumper stickers are. So I was thinking about Asheville when I looked at this text and I remembered and I see in this text that virtue signaling never pays off. Now, what is virtue signaling? I had to reflect on my own life. Again, no stones to throw here. I needed to deal with some hard issues myself. I find myself virtue signaling when I'm ready to present my convictions as a statement about the sort of person I am, rather than let those be convictions that shape how I live. Do you see the difference? I'm not pointing at other people. I'm willing to point at myself. Virtue signaling is making a statement about what kind of person I am, but never really living the motivated heart of a changed life. Let me give you some examples. It may be no secret to anybody. I'm generally um, what folks would say as opposed to abortion, but I don't have a bumper sticker on my car with that. Instead, I want to take that conviction and I support and volunteer with positive options here in 
Holland. I appreciate that ministry that looks to minimize, support people, prevent unwanted pregnancies, care for women who find themselves in problem pregnancies, and help families after the birth. So you don't see a bumper sticker, but I hope you do see some fruit. Do you see the difference in that? I'm also opposed to systematic racism. That's something that's very close to my heart, given the places we've lived and ministered. But I realize that 8% of African-American fourth graders are reading at grade level, 8% in the Detroit schools. And so Mary Lynn and I have been a part of ministries for decades now that help kids learn to read. She turned it into a business to help kids who were struggling, like one of ours was, learn to read. There's not a bumper sticker, but there's a conviction that leads to a different life. That's what I'm trying to point to. And we all need to ask ourselves sometimes, okay, am I taking this stand just so people think something of me? Or does this reflect something here that needs to express itself in a different kind of life? The first thing Jesus teaches us in this passage today is that if you want to find your place in the universe, virtue signaling will not work. It's interesting, this is what he's doing in this passage. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, as he preaches the Lord's, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It begins this way, and I, I wanted to outline this and help you see this. This is how I dig into the Scripture. It begins with a thesis statement. He, he makes his point, and he says this in verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's kind of a definition of virtue signaling, isn't it? If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It won't pay off. You can signal your virtue all you want. I'm opposed. But unless you're helping kids, God is saying to Bill, learn to read, you've missed the point. It doesn't pay off. So there's the thesis. It's verse 1. And then he illustrates in three different areas of life what that statement would look like three different ways. You see, he says, do not practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. He's pointing to the motivation of the heart. Why do you do what you do? Is it because you want to be noticed? And people think, oh, he must be one of them. He's not one of them. He gets to the issues of the heart, if you're doing it in order to be seen, I'd encourage you, step back and ask yourself. Because Jesus himself says, you will have no reward, is the uh, word used there. You'll, it won't pay off. There'll be no observable fruit for your efforts. It won't pay off. Your father will not be moved or impressed if you do what you do in order to be seen by others and get response and feedback from them. So that's the thesis. Here's the first illustration. It has to do with our giving. He says, so, thesis, there's the connecting word, so, when you give to the needy, he's assuming that every child of God will. The gospel works in our hearts a generosity that shows in a joy when we get to live on less than we have earned so that we can invest in the lives of others, particularly the poor, the orphan, the needy. 
When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Illustration number two, the next one, it's about prayer. And he says regarding prayer, beginning in verse five, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. So he starts, he's going to focus this virtue signaling doesn't work. He's looked at giving. Now he's going to use the illustration of prayer to see how it works. And he gives us a negative example. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. He then goes on to say, this is how you should pray. And that's where this text, the Lord's Prayer, shows up. That's where we get what we get. So he's trying to demonstrate to us virtue signaling doesn't work. It looks like this when you give. It looks like this when you pray. Don't pray in order to be seen, but go in to the private place and with God pray, our Father. It's interesting, illustration three is about fasting. And again, he goes on in verse 16 to say, when you fast, assuming that that's part of a a full-orbed prayer life, fasting will be a, a tool that ought to be in your tool prayer kit for those moments where you're facing more than you can imagine. We pray, we fast. We seek the Father. Jesus says in verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And then he goes on to teach about true fasting. So you see, generosity, prayer, fasting, those not being public expressions of what sort of person you are, those are not to be used for virtue signaling, but instead, Those practices, because they ought to reflect our lives, should grow out of convictions of the heart that are the fruit of a new heart from God himself. They're an outward expression of an inward relationship with God. They're behaviors that express gospel-centered motivations. Lord, you've blessed me. Give me a generosity. Father, you call me into relationship. Help me to set aside time and space and focus to listen. Again and again, he calls us. This is why last week I wanted to focus on prayer as the point of intersection. It's the intersection of our imminent lives. You know, we have lives that can be understood in terms of physics and chemistry and economics and social forces and all those kind of things. That's real. You can understand your imminent world. But prayer is where the transcendent intersects with it. Your prayer life is that point of intersection between the life you're living in this world that can be explained in the imminent frame and the point where a transcendent, and not just any transcendence, not just any spirituality, but a particular God, Yahweh, the Lord of the Bible, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that point of intersection an encounter with the living God. This is Jesus teaching us to pray like he prays, to pursue and to seek God, to give him space for that point of intersection. He teaches us to pray with this point of intersection perspective. It's in prayer that we meet God. So prayer is more than just thinking positive thoughts and calming our demeanor. That can be good. 
But Jesus is talking about way more. Prayer places us in a particular posture with the universe. And it's a place we can flourish and thrive, find security, hope, joy, make a difference in the life of others, live without guilt, live with conviction and bravery. Prayer places us in a particular posture with the universe. And I see it deeply in the first two words in Matthew here, our Father. In the Greek, it's pater hemon, Father, intimate Father. Father of relationship, our, us together. So I want to look in these two words. First, the hour. Our reminds us as we pray that by the grace of God, we have experienced adoption into a particular family. We are not alone. It's interesting to me, Jesus doesn't teach us to pray, my Father. He teaches us to pray, our Father. Now, as a part of the hour, I have a my. Bill and Kathy and Amy and Steve all look to William Lindner as our Father. And each of us could come to William Lindner as my Father. So understand that Christian faith is personal, but it's not isolated. When we pray, we do not pray from a point of isolation. Private prayer is where we remember we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. Private prayer is not isolated prayer, but it's prayer that connects us to God and to his world. It places you in a network of relationships. Authentic, gospel-centered faith is personal, yes, but it's not private. It brings you into relationship. When I pray, our Father, sometimes I'll meditate on that word, our, and I'll see my children. I'll see people I love from celebration. I remember Wang Yi, uh, the Chinese pastor who's imprisoned right now. I remember the missionaries of my denomination that are in closed countries. We can't even speak their name or where they are. Those are part of the hour. My friends in the Holly Grove neighborhood of New Orleans and in Alexandria, where there's poverty and brokenness in ways that we often don't see here on the North Shore, they're part of the hour. I pray as part of their voice, with part of their voice. When we pray, we do not pray in isolation. Who is a part of your hour? Now, I took some time to kind of meditate this out, and I came up with three things that grow out of that. This is not exclusive or exegetical, but things that got me thinking. When we do not pray from isolation, here's what it means. It means that this prayer will help learn how to navigate forgiveness. I don't know if you have any relationships, <laughs> but every relationship you have will be an opportunity to live out the grace of forgiveness, right? Because wherever two people are over time, there will be an opportunity for forgiveness. Just ask Mary Lynn. Can we be honest? 
when I began to realize, the gospel began to get bigger and bigger in my heart, the gospel of God's grace, and I realized, okay, what is a church but a big sinner who's leading a collection of sinners? What could go wrong with that? <laughs> Nothing because of the gospel, because the Holy Spirit is at work to lead us and to teach us in the gospel in the gospel. And part of that is going to be forgiveness. Our Father. And the hour includes that person. We're going to learn to navigate forgiveness. We're going to learn how to be safely transparent. Because part of what the gospel is doing is calling us into a relationship, learning to live with forgiveness, and learning to live with a level of openness and honesty with those who are in our hour. I often say that it's not appropriate for everybody here to know every one of my sin issues in detail. But it is important that every one of you know that I'm still struggling with some issues and with besetting sin. I remember one time I told a congregation, it's a wonder people come to hear me preach sometimes. I remember telling a congregation one time, if you knew the sin that I'm struggling with, you probably wouldn't want me as pastor. But if I knew the sin you're struggling with, I might not want you in my congregation. So we're here to, yeah, some of you are just getting it. (laughs) Friends, we're in this together. That's what the hour is about. And again, there's a level of appropriateness that's important. But I hope you pray for me as a sinner who needs God's grace, not as a guy who's arrived. I'm on the journey. And so, praying the hour, adoption into a particular family where we do not pray from a position of isolation, means too that I need to learn how to bear fruit. One of the reasons I pursue Jesus as deeply as I can is because I want Him to bear fruit in me for His glory and for your benefit. It's my prayer each week that part of what God is doing in my life might encourage and build and gather, draw you closer to Him. So, we pray not from a posture of isolation, and we pray the word Father. Now, it's very, very interesting. The word Father is used occasionally in the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament, roughly 15 times of God. And it's used the first time of God as He brings Israel out of Egypt. As a father, I brought you out of captivity and slavery. Now, when you get to Jesus, he can't stop pointing to God as the heavenly Father. And if you will look just through the Sermon on the Mount, I did this this week, at the number of times he refers to God as Father and us as children of the Father, you get this deep sense that there's something unique and central to this in the God. This is why the word adoption is such a beautiful biblical metaphor of what happens when we surrender our lives to Christ, when we experience our faith response to His grace. We're adopted and adopted to a particular dad. You know, I'm the son of William Lidner, now deceased. I'm the son of a particular dad. Most of that was good, but not all of it was perfect. I was in a relationship with a particular dad. The father we pray to is a particular father. We want to get to know him. I was thinking this morning, you know, next week is Father's Day. 
Um, there's three people in all of the history of the planet who can rightly call me father. Two things I can guarantee about that relationship. One is I gave it everything I had. And two, what they got was not a perfect father. You see, my kids' earthly father sometimes gave them a perspective on the heavenly father that was difficult. My prayer, even as I'm an earthly father, is they, instead, they may get to know deeply the heavenly father and see me in that light. When we pray our Father, we're not praying to an infinite or divine projection of the earthly fathers we had. I'm thankful. I have an earthly father who's really a good influence in my life. Not everybody has that. Friends, don't throw away the idea of praying to the heavenly Father if your earthly father was a bad representation. Instead, get to know through the Scripture and in prayer, get to know that heavenly Father, and it'll change the perspective. It'll start to heal the wounds. It'll guide the response even to a broken earthly Father. But know this, when we pray, we pray to the true and perfect Father not simply to a well-intentioned and to a variety of degrees, imperfect Father. Here's the thing that keeps drawing me to the Heavenly Father in prayer. As I think of the whole gospel and what that means for my prayer, I'm praying to a God the Father who would take my hit. That's what it says he did in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Romans 3.26 says that God did this, and Jesus went to the cross to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be both just, he's the pillar of justice, but he's also the one who justifies for those who have faith. I pray to a father who is true and who is perfect. His grace would empower me to be the, the less than perfect but well-intentioned earthly father, one who points. But don't give up on the good news that for whatever you may have lacked in this life, those can be real and honest wounds. Let's be honest about that. But there is a true and perfect heavenly father who can restore, who can heal, who can give a, a name and give an identity. See, one of the things that this does for us, when we pray our Father, it puts us in a particular posture with the universe. It sets us where some external reference points are given for our identity. I know who I am when I see who God is. This is if you like to read Calvin's Institutes like I do. Okay, maybe I'm the only guy here. But this is the first chapter in that majestic theological work, that as we know God, we know ourselves. When he says, I am your Savior, we get the message that we need one. External reference points for self-understanding are important. You know, family is one. I was about 12 years old before I realized that when my parents said, I'd go, why do I have to do this? And my mom would look at me and she would say, 
because you are a, a Lidner. For the first 12 years of my life, I'd go, oh, okay. It wasn't until a little later that I began to think, well, I don't know that I'm going to follow that. But there was a way in which being part of a family guided who I was and let me know who I was. Now, the nature of my dad, that's another external reference point. He was who he was, for better or for worse, and that helped secure who I am. Gravity is an external reference point. I've talked about that before. You may think inside that you're bigger and better and not held by gravity, and you can step out of a 10-story window and hold on to that without problem for I think it's 3.4 seconds. You see, a lot of the internal things we decide are true that end up being false take years to bear fruit, not 3.4 seconds. Our self-understanding is shaped by others. We're not completely determined by others. There are some decisions we make, some convictions we hold, some roads we go down, and they affect who we are. But who we are as a person is not completely in our hands, for better or for worse. This is a great time to give you this phrase, expressive individualism, that people who are smarter than me have identified as kind of the undercurrent of how we live in this day and time. The idea that I determine what truth is. Well, I feel like this is true, and so that's truth. And if I question that, I'm questioning a person. See, expressive individualism means that it's all on your shoulders and you better get it right. Praying our Father says, wait a minute, There's a God who's bigger than me. There's a community of faith. They can have some input in who I am. Praying like Jesus places you in a relationship, a posture that offers you the answer to the question of who you are, at least in part. Now, look at the world and suppose I am 15. I'm probably a high school student. So part of that means I need to be learning in my classes, taking driver's ed. But it defines as well, at least in part, it's defined by my mom and dad, my siblings, lots of configurations in how that works. But I'm also defined by my relationship with God. If I have come to faith, then I'm not only a high school student in a family structure of some sort, but I'm also, because of my faith response to His grace, a deeply loved, fully adopted child of the great Creator King how I treat my peers, what I do with my smartphone, how I think about my future. I'm not alone in facing those because I found my place in the universe. Some of that external, some of it is certainly internal. But imagine the importance of this. If we tell our kids, oh, you'll have to find your own truth. Go find it and put it to work. Can you imagine the burden that is? See, friends, ideas have consequences. I don't have much memory of my years in puberty. That's because I didn't have much brain in those years. Can you imagine asking a child in the midst of puberty to pursue the undeniable truth of their identity inside of them? and to figure out their place in the universe. Figure that out 
while you, my body is awash in hormones? Friends, ideas have consequences. We are living in what people call an epidemic of anxiety. Now, there's a lot of things to be anxious for, and we need to be encouraging and supportive of one another as we face this. I could give you a list of some of my anxieties, but do you see how telling a person, the truth is in you, you better figure it out and come up with it for your life. Do you see how that just pushes you one more force pushing you towards anxiety. Instead, this morning, we have an invitation to gospel-centered prayer. Friends, the Father knows what you need. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 8, do not be like those other people, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, so pray like this. Many times as I listen and have conversations with people, they'll say, oh, why should I pray? God already knows what he's going to do. Exactly. Jesus says, that's why you pray. Because you don't know what the Father wants to do. And it's in prayer that you can begin to get an inkling and start to maybe find out, sort of. The fact that God is who he is is no reason not to pray. It's the very reason to pray. Your Father knows what you need. Jesus teaches us to pray so we can better know what it is that we really need. I want to tell you, and don't, I mean, let's continue the conversation, but I don't know that you can ask that question, why should I pray if God already knows what he's going to do? I don't know that there's a way to ask that question without first assuming that prayer is about changing God. Oh, he knows what he's going to do, and I can't change that. Why should I pray? Oh, he knows what he's going to do. I don't. I'm leaving it to him. I won't pray. Jesus says because he knows what he's going to do, we need to pray to find out, to let it shape us, to grow in that, to give our lives to that. Because I know that Jesus went to the cross for me and for all humanity so that they might come to faith because he commissioned me as the last thing he did. He commissioned all of us to go therefore into all the nations and make disciples. I know that's his will. I am praying for the gospel to go to places where it has never been before, maybe another country or maybe just the middle school in our county. The gospel wants to go to heart. So the invitation to gospel-centered prayer is to go in where the Father knows what you need. And so we're faced with a challenge. Are you going to simply make prayer about what you yourself want? Or will you let it be about what your Father sees that you need? I had football coaches who saw in me something that I needed even though I didn't want to run those extra laps. Last week, I closed with an illustration. Do you remember the drinking straw? If you were underwater and had to breathe, thinking of prayer's breath, if you had to breathe through a drinking straw, how hard would that be? Let this be the summer that you throw away the drinking straw and get the snorkel. This is the way my brain works. What if your prayer life was like a drinking straw that you're breathing through, and God in his love said, I want to give them a snorkel. I'm going to put my finger over the drinking straw. When you really want 
to breathe. You'll throw away the old to get the new. Take a step, enter in. I've talked about finding your place in the universe. You know, the world often tells us with expressive individualism that you've got to make your place in the universe. Identify who you are and then express and demand it. I want to tell you the gospel is different than that. I'd phrase it this way. The gospel is about receiving the true and perfect Heavenly Father's good place for you in the universe. I rarely ask kids as they're growing up, what do you want to do when you grow up? Try to ask, where might God call you for the next step in your life? Because there's a loving Heavenly Father who has a place for you. Enter into that. Let's discover that. That's what prayer is about. We can be a part of this together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you yearn to draw us deep in relationship with you. And so in this moment, I pray our, and I know that I am praying with every person here, that Wang Yi in prison in China, that my friend Dr. Franklin in Alexandria, as he preaches to Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, that the hour is so big and marvelous that Jesus gave his life for something so much bigger than me or even just us. And together we pray our and then Father, that yes, you are majestic and sovereign, but you've reached out to us and given us a new identity, a new place in the universe from which to live and to bear fruit. Fill us with the great joy and hope of that. Thank you, our Father, for your kindness and grace. These things we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. As you're able, we'll stand in hymn number 348, a great one, Great is Thy Faithfulness. This is the God we pursue in prayer.
friends, go forward with this blessing. It's written by the Apostle Paul for his church in Corinth, reminds us of his great grace. And now, may the grace of Christ, which daily renews us, and the love of God, which enables us to love all, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which unites us in one body. May he make us eager to obey the will of God until we meet again through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? And amen.